This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Here on Well, 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 we delve into the issues impacting and surrounding the health and well-being of our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. Coming to you from Joy's Victorian Pride Centre studios on Boonwurrung Country, I'm your host, Jack Ranjan, and joined this week in studio by Jacinta Hennicom. Hello, hello. Hello. How are you going? I'm good. I'm really excited for this episode. I was going to say, because we've got NIDOC just around the corner. Yes, we do. It is NIDOC week from the 2nd to the 9th of July. And this year's theme uh, is actually a really special one, mm. I think. I've, I've really been enjoying the conversations that I've seen happening around it. Yep. The theme is For Our Elders, and it's celebrating the role that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, First Nations elders play in communities and families you know, as cultural knowledge holders, survivors, leaders and trailblazers. The, the guest that we've got on tonight has um, quite a track record of working with um, First Nations communities, I guess. Who are we speaking to, uh, Jacinta? Yeah, so we will be speaking to Shane Sturgis, who is a proud Aboriginal man with family links to the Gundungurra and Narago people. Mm. And Shane is a proud member of the LGBTIQA plus SB community, uh, also the CEO of Black Aboriginal yep. Corporation, Black with a Q, uh, which is the peak organisation for Aboriginal uh, LGBTIQIA plus SB mob um, in New South Wales. So Black is a a national organisation, so we'll be chatting about what they do, um, hearing a bit about Shane's life and, you know, his... How he got to that sort of position and how he mm. his previous experiences um, working with different communities kind of led to uh, this point. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So a fantastic interview with Shane. That's a lot coming up this episode, yes. so let's get straight into it. You're getting well, well, well with the team from Thorn Harbour Health. We are now chatting to Shane Sturgis from Black Aboriginal Corporation. Shane, thank you very much for joining us. Did you want to start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Um, So Shane Sturgis, I'm a proud Gunnengarra Nautico man from New South Wales and the CEO for Black Aboriginal Corporation. Um, I've been at Black now for just almost 18 months, um, but I've had a pretty long career in the community sector and prior to that was in the corporate world. Um, Was married at a really young age, have two beautiful granddaughters and a a loving son um, and currently live in the wonderful Gadigal country in Sydney. Beautiful. And, you know, you mentioned there that you... You do have a, a wonderful family and you were married quite young. Um, and I wanted to ask maybe a bit of a personal question, but how did you, um, I guess, come about uh, on your journey of being a gay Aboriginal man? Were those things that were intertwined for you in terms of your identity or was it something that you sort of figured out later in life? Um, yeah, for me, my journey started later in life in both aspects, both my cultural identity and uh, my sexuality. Um, growing up in a small town, or when I was growing up, it was a small town, not so much now. Um, you know, you sort of were 
brought up to believe and be led down the path of, you know, grow up, get a job, get married, have children, buy a house, settle down kind of thing, um, which I did. And um, then after I'd separated, um, started exploring my sexuality and um, had my first uh, same-sex encounter in my mid-20s and came out at 27. Um, in regard to my cultural identity, um, growing up, we were always told that we were European. Um, and so I didn't get the luxury of growing up in culture. Um, wasn't until I was in, in my early teens that um, I found out through family that um, I had Aboriginal heritage um, and my grandmother um, was quite a prominent um, Aboriginal woman in the town that I grew up, but um, sorry, my great-grandmother, but my grandfather had disassociated from his family, so we never knew that growing up. Um, so it wasn't until my early teen years that I started um, finding out about my cultural identity and learning more about that. I guess we were talking a little bit before we were recording uh, around <clears throat> that experience of coming to terms with those two different identities. And I, I guess you spoke a little bit about feeling welcomed to, to one or, or not feeling quite so, whether it's around sexuality or around culture. Do you mind speaking a bit to what those journeys of, of coming to terms with that identity was like? Yeah. So in regard to my sexuality, it was a very easy journey for me. Um, my family were very accepting. Um, I came out when I was um, in a relationship with a man. And so that uh, and I was at university at the time, which I felt was a more, the environment was more opening and accepting anyway, and helped me come to terms with my sexuality a lot easier. Um, compared to some of the stories I've heard, I really look back, at, back and think that my journey was quite blessed in that regard. In regard to my cultural identity, it has had more um, of a troubled aspect where, you know, having worked in the community sector within the Aboriginal specific services, I've had um, staff, you know, tell me that I'm not black enough to be their boss and um, that I can't tell them what to do. And it, for a long time, it made me feel really uncomfortable about my ability to voice anything in regard to my culture because I wasn't brought up in culture, so therefore I obviously had no understanding of culture um, from their perspective. So um, for me, it took a long time for, to build that confidence um, in my cultural identity, and it sort of impacted and impeded that ability. What were some of the I, maybe bigger influences as part of that journey? I mean, th this year's NADOC theme is for our elders. I imagine they might may, may have played some sort of part in that, but um, was it speaking with... Um, other mob, potentially other queer mob as well. Um, how did you get through that um, intense, I guess, situation that might have cropped up a number of times for you? I think um, part of the confidence building for me <coughs> was with the assistance of Arnie Ruth Simon and Arnie Rhonda Gray, who I worked with very closely. Um, and they were very supportive of me understanding my culture and really helped me build that confidence for myself um, and in the more recent years Auntie Beryl Venopoulou has been 
a really caring and nurturing soul for me to be with. Um, so yeah, absolutely, there's been some influential elders that have helped me on my cultural journey. Yeah, and I guess while you were navigating all of that and, you know, these issues were coming up when you were, uh, I guess, in roles where you're working with other mob, um, how did you get to that point where you were working in, I guess, an identified role? Was that something that you always wanted to do or you mentioned that you started in a corporate kind of career beforehand? Like what, what's that been like? Um, well, yeah, as a young man, you know, married with stepchildren and then having a child of my own, I felt it was really important for me to get a solid career. So I entered the world of banking and finance and worked there for a number of years, became a branch manager for a credit union. And um, this isn't an indication of any level of happiness that you get working in that career for all of the bankers that may be listening. But for me, it just wasn't a good fit. And I genuinely disliked getting up and going to work every day. And it was really impacting my mental well-being. Um, so I made an active change. I really sat down and looked at what I wanted to do, what wanted, what I felt would make me happy. And working with community is where I f- have found that level of pleasure. So I left the world of banking and finance and stayed within the finance area while I trained as a financial counsellor, um, worked as a financial counsellor while I went to uni and got a counselling and community services management degree. Um, having identified community services and working with community is what I wanted to do. So for the last 20 plus years without giving away my age, um, I've worked in the community sector in management and executive roles and it's a much more um, fit, it's a a greater fit for me in that role. It meets my social justice values better than the corporate and the banking and finances sector did. Were there any, I guess, aspects from working at maybe a credit union or, or um, your experiences before going into financial counselling? Because I understand that it's, is it mostly financial counselling and not sort of mental health focused counselling that you work in? Um, so originally when I left banking and finance, I worked as a financial counsellor yeah. and then went to uni and became a counsellor, um, did a counselling degree at uni. So um, I worked as a counsellor for a while. Um, in the disability sector and then worked as a tenants advocate for a while for the Aboriginal Tenants Advice Service Um, and then uh, started working for one of the major charities managing their Aboriginal uh, tenancy support program and then leaded them into the homelessness programs. Mm. What were some of the lessons that you took with you potentially from um, your banking experience, but maybe more recently from working with community on financial counselling that could be either, uh, I guess, issues that you see pop up or uh, problems that people find themselves in and how you go about addressing them, um, if there's any sort of through line between the financial side and and the other counselling work that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge aspect of um, financial literacy that's lacking. Um, that l- basic living skills of financial understanding and preparing for your future is really lacking, and particularly within the Aboriginal communities. Um, because we haven't had a history of building generational wealth, um, we haven't had access to um, e- education 
the way non-Indigenous people have, we've then not had the ability to be in positions of earnings, you know, great pay, in great paying positions to worry about those financial elements. So financial literacy is a, is a key element that transfers across that. Um, but part of the reason that I went from being a branch manager to working as a financial counsellor was seeing people coming in, applying for loans, and on paper they looked absolutely perfect to lend the money. But then on meeting with them, it became really evident that they were borrowing money to get out of debt and it was going to end them up in a really vicious cycle of debt. Um, and that's what prompted me to think, okay, how do I help these people as opposed to get them into more and more strife? No, fair. Um, I guess what were, um, as part of the, that mixed, uh, the, the varied career, I guess, that you've had across multiple industries and different kinds of counselling, um, what were some of the highlights potentially um, that you look uh, back on and reflect on fondly? Um, I think for me, working with community in general is a highlight, in regardless of the industry that I've worked with. Um, being able to connect with community, be able to see lives being changed, whether it be from you know, a mild connection that you've made, um, but you've been able to monitor and see progress in someone's confidence to the other extreme where you know that your intervention has genuinely saved someone's life. Um, and then seeing that person down the track you know, working successfully, married, children, whatever this scenario may be. But you know that you've had a hand in that, that you've improved their lives and you've been able to follow their journey with them um, has, is a real highlight working in the sector. Wonderful. We'll be back to continue talking with Shane in just a moment and asking a bit more about your newer role with the Black Aboriginal Corporation. We'll be back in a second. Sexual health, mental health, and the overall well-being of our LGBTIQ communities. You're listening to Well, Well, Well. You're here on Well, Well, Well with Jack and Jacinta, and we're joined by Shane Sturgis uh, from the Black Aboriginal Corporation. Before the break, Shane, we were talking a little bit about um, your work history, how you got into financial counselling and then community services more broadly. I guess, how did that lead to um, your involvement with Black? Um, I think my involvement with Black started off as being part of the Black queer community of Sydney um, and making the connections through there. Um, I joined the board of Black. Um, Black as an organisation is only three and a half years old. Um, so I was one of the um, founding board members for Black. Um, and while I was working in my full-time day job, it was a volunteer position. And then um, when the service reached a level where they could start employing staff and um, having funding to do so, um, and it needed a paid position for a CEO, I decided to put my hat into the ring and that's how I ended up here. But ideally it was because of community connection and um, loving the, the work that Black did and what Black could be for community. Yeah, and what, if you, obviously for the listeners out there who may not have heard of Black before or don't know much about um, 
the the organization what what is black aboriginal corporation what work do you do okay so as i said it's only a, a relatively new organization it's three and a half years old and it was created by community members that identified as having that intersectionality of living their queer lives and living their cultural lives um, to enable community to access service provision while identifying as their whole self, that they didn't have to pick and choose their identity to access services, whether it be, you know, accessing health services um, as a, a LGBTIQ plus SB member or accessing services as an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander member of community. Um, so that was the ideal uh, platform for Blacks' existence um, and in doing so to be a holistic service that offered not just immediate um, service provision but also a referral source to other agencies so we didn't have to recreate all of those wheels and cogs that um, supply services to the community. Um, so at the moment, um, within the first three years of service, we are a member of the Coalition of Aboriginal Peaks and we're a uh, state peak organisation for LGBTIQ plus Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people for New South Wales, but we have a national service delivery model and with the Australian representatives for Ilga World for the Oceania region covering the Pacifica Islands. Wow, um, in, yeah. And yeah no, so it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. That is a very far reach. And, um, you know, primarily in terms of service um, provision, you did say that that's a national kind of framework that you use. What kind of services are you providing for um, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, LGBTQA plus SB mob? Um, well, having the first couple of years of the service being created in lockdown, I think we, we commenced service delivery in November and then the world went into lockdown, I think, in the following February, March. So um, the good thing about that was we didn't have to pivot anything because we just created everything in a lockdown environment. Um, wow, yeah. So we did a lot of research work. We did a lot of um, food security for our elders, a lot of online connectivity with our community, um, online programming, candle making, those kind of fun things, element things to connect people to like take away that feeling of isolation. Um, where we could during those pockets of isolation breakouts, um, you know, we hosted community gatherings and events that were all COVID safe and followed the, the government guidelines. Um, this has been probably the first year since operation that we've been able to operate freely um, without restrictions. So we're planning on getting around to the country and um, meeting all of our members and um, attending regional pride events and um, you know NAIDOC events and Reconciliation Week events and all of those days and weeks and months of significance that happen. We would love to have a presence there. So if any of your listeners have got something that's coming up that they would love Black to be part of, then please reach out at admin at black.org.au um, and we'll pop that into our events calendar. But um, Ideally, this year, apart from getting out into community for the first time, we are kicking off a two-year project for same-sex domestic violence across the east coast of Australia, which will include Victoria, Queensland, New South Wales, Far North Queensland and the Torres Strait. Um, and that will be going along the, those states and territories, um, engaging with community, 
having yarns about lived experience of same-sex domestic violence, building up collateral and education pieces and then delivering those into communities um, based on a, um, a lived experience model. And that's a two-year project. And then we um, have a New South Wales-specific project that we're kicking off over the next three years to increase digital inclusion into regional remote parts of New South Wales. Um, and in doing so, doing it in a very mindful way of once we know we're going into a region that has had very limited or no digital access, um, and if we're creating digital hubs there, ensuring that we do it in a very safe and protected way and offering training to those communities as well um, about, you know, what possible things that they may encounter now that they're digitally included. I was going to say, because you mentioned in that response around um, how you, a lot of Black's activities kind of picked up speed uh, through lockdown. And so a lot of the work you were doing would have been done remote online um but now that you're able to kind of go out into these communities go out on country and connect in um for what many of these communities i imagine would be um new ways um of connecting with an organization like black what are some of the challenges for black in doing that and how important is it to overcome those um the importance is huge and it's the reason why we exist and why we do it but the barriers that we need to overcome is um, particularly in smaller communities or more regional remote communities um, is people willing their willingness to engage you know if they've spent a life um, not having access to lgbtiq plus sb services as an aboriginal torres strait islander person in their community um, just because we show up doesn't mean they're going to come running to our door (laughs) because if we show up and we don't create a footprint there that's sustainable um, to support those individuals, um, once we go, they're then left shouldering that entire burden. And that's not something that we want for our community. When we um, create these platforms and foundations, we want to make sure that they are sustainable so um, the communities feel supported, that they feel safe and included. Yeah, of course. And, you know, for these people who are, um, you know, perhaps living away from, um, I guess what we can assume there might be more out, proud, queer mob, you know, in Gadigal, in Sydney, um, in the metro sort of regions, what is it like away from those metro regions? Is it, um, you know, much more isolating, I can assume? Well, yeah, it is very. It, it is isolating, but it also creates a significant impact on mental well-being. Um, you know, 235 years of colonisation has created quite a deficit for um, LGBTIQ plus mob. We're in the regard of... You know, if you're in a regional remote setting and you're somebody coming to terms with your gender or sexuality and um, you're going to elders for advice and support, but, you're, but you know, your community has been impacted significantly by white religion and um, colonisation, you may not feel safe doing that on a cultural level. Um, and for those community members, you know, it can be... Um, the creation of even a greater level of isolation or a greater feeling of isolation. Um, and it prompts them then to move away from country, move away from their family, their kin, to come to a more 
metropolitan area or Sydney, Melbourne, and you know, Brisbane, where they can be a little bit more anonymous, where they can connect in with like-minded people, that they can um, have a level of safety in that community and have a family, like a chosen family. Um, and for the, quite sadly, for the community members that don't have the ability and the resources to do that, um, it, it's very damaging for them um, and can sometimes result in like, them taking their lives. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely, um, you know, we know that, we know that, you know, the impact of that isolation and, um, yeah, that intersection of having, you know, discrimination or not so much discrimination but just a lack of acceptance or, or understanding means that people are put in these really difficult um, positions where they feel like there is no other opportunity or no other option um, for them to live their lives and to be themselves. Um, I guess, do you see ways in which culture does support people's well-being? Ways that um, you know, indigenous culture or um, queer culture, how that can feed people's well-being and create, um, I guess, a, a healing kind of experience for people. Yeah, I think both of those intersections have their own element to play in an individual's um, feeling of safety and well-being, um, culture being a very significant aspect of inclusion inclusion and kinship. Um, and if you feel that that's not going to be there, um, then you go to the other elements, which are then your queer family or your queer culture um, for that support and recognition and acceptance. I think each of them provide their own level of um, ability in doing that um, and that ability varies from community to community um, even within you know a, a city like a larger city um, even though you might have um, more inclusion in an LGBTIQ plus SB setting it doesn't necessarily mean that 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 you're included um, and it can still create a level of isolation for you. You might feel anonymous in in your journey, and that might provide you a level of safety, but it doesn't necessarily bring you a sense of in inclusiveness. Absolutely. I mean, we could talk about this for, at length for a, a fair bit longer, but um, before we move on, I will ask, I guess, if people want to know more about Black, uh, where can they go to find more information, Shane? Uh, pop onto our website at black.org.au or if you email admin at black.org.au, um, we can send out resources for you or arrange a time to have a yarn with you on the phone. And that was Black, B-L-A-Q, uh, for anyone uh, curious yeah. as well. Shane Sturger, CEO at Black Aboriginal Corporation, thank you so much for joining us to speak a little bit about the work you do uh, for community, the work at Black. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you to all your listeners and vote yes. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.